You are driving along on a country road on a dark and stormy night. You find three people stranded on the side of the road. One is an elderly woman who looks like she shouldn't be left out much longer. She's frail and perhaps ill. Another is an old friend of yours who saved your life years ago. And the third is the man or woman of your dreams. In this scenario, you're single. Which do you pick up, for you are riding in some kind of Mazda hatchback thing that only has room for one passenger? That's the conundrum. The story is that this was used on a job application years ago. And, and the question was to see how people made tough decisions, what their values were, and this sort of thing. To see if people would say, I can't choose, or I'd try to fit them all in, or if someone would decisively say, well, this one. And they all have problems. Uh, for, for the, there was all men applying for this job, and so what do you do? Do you take your best friend, pay him back, for you owe him your life, and leave two women out in the rain? That's no good. Do you take the... the old woman and say, I'm going to bring you to safety and maybe to the hospital and make sure you're all right, but then leave not only the woman of your dreams standing there, you may never see her again, but your old friend might wind up with her. That's no good. <laughs> then you pick up the woman and lose every chance with her because you've just left an old woman out in the rain. There's no right answer, except the story goes that someone wrote this. I give the car keys to my old friend and let him take the lady to the hospital. I would stay behind and wait for help with the woman of my dreams. Boom! Some problems do have a simple solution. We often are closed to it, but it's often standing right there. That's why God tells us to get counsel. Counsel from a multitude of counselors. But here in the book of Jonah, there is no easy answer, at least not from the point of view of these sailors. There's a big problem. It's another one of these dark, stormy nights. It, it is just absolute, horrible squall, the kind of thing that made hardened sailors start to weep and cry out to God and begin to lose all hope. Remember, they're at their wit's end. They've tried everything in their power as seafarers. After that didn't work, they said, okay, let's have some kind of impromptu ecumenical prayer service, everybody crying out to his own God. They even woke up Jonah and said, get up, you idiot, we're all going to die. Cry out to your God. Maybe he'll hear us and think of us, and we will not perish. They've tried all of it, and none of it has worked. And so we read in verse 7, they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Their religion told them that one person was guilty. This is how they were thinking. One person here has the answer, at least. Let's find out who it is. Someone's holding back. Someone's holding out on us. So they cast lots. A common custom in the ancient Near East, especially popular for divining, divination among pagans, which, if movies tell me anything, it still is. How do you know that lady's a witch? Because she had bones and like threw them and read them. When I was a kid, I remember the reason that many people didn't want you to play Dungeons and Dragons was not the dragons in Dungeons, it was the dice. Hey, careful. Somehow sorry was okay, but, you know, canasta's all right. But, 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 you know, the fact is that the Hebrews often also used lots, the casting of lots, when God prescribed it. 
We see in the Old Testament, God would use the lots being cast to allot tribes. They literally allotted with lots the tribes to the different areas of the promised land. They chose people that way. They would choose the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement by casting lots, even into the New Testament. In Acts chapter 1, that's how they replaced Judas. They're like, well, that guy's done. Now what? They cast lots. They had some contenders, and they let God choose. And it all fits with this view of God's sovereignty. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. It looks random, but it's not. It's God's sovereignty. And, you know, it, it was a, a common thing to choose someone by lot. I, I was telling a Sunday school class a few weeks ago about this place, Masada, where I was, uh, where it was kind of the last stronghold after Jerusalem was destroyed. And they knew they were going to die, these freedom fighters. They knew the Romans were just about at their door. They were just about out of water. And so what did they do? They cast lots to see which of the elders would kill all the others. No one wanted that job. And there were actually, uh, they had found pieces of broken pottery with each person's name written on it. You put it in a thing, someone picks one, and that's the guy. But more likely, what they did in this case was more like how they chose Achan out of the whole group. Remember we mentioned last week that this story has connections to that story of Achan back in the, in the uh, book of Joshua, that Achan had actually taken something that didn't belong to him, but belonged to God. He'd stolen it, he'd buried it in his tent, and God's anger then was against all of Israel. Much like God's anger is, is poured out on this whole boat full of people, only one of whom has sinned. So there's a buried sin, it's hidden. Jonah kind of buries himself in the belly of the boat. And God says, he doesn't say to Joshua, get up and go deal with this guy. He says, no, get up, bring everyone together. Have them purify themselves and, and we'll see who it is. And by lot, they would probably use special stones. And, they, and by lot, they would choose this tribe out of the twelve. Then, from that tribe, this clan. Then from this clan, this family. Then from this family, they would find this way. And they finally got down to this one man, Achan. That's time-consuming. But what else are they going to do? Again, they're at their wits' end. Recognize this is something of a Hail Mary, if you'll pardon a, kind of a bad pun here. But they've got nothing else they can do. So they do this process of elimination, and it comes down to one man, Jonah, the guy who was actually sleeping beneath deck. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? As soon as he's been singled out, it's cross-examination time. They give him the third degree. All these questions. They, they all recognize that this, this is the truth, and he doesn't deny it. He owns it. We'll give Jonah that much credit. And this series of questions. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And who are your people? I don't think that they were going down a list. I imagine these questions coming all at once from a number of different directions as people demand to know how this has come upon them. What does this have to do with me? Why am I in this predicament? He only actually answers the last question. He says, I am a Hebrew. Then he mentions that because he's a Hebrew, he worships a particular God. And I want you to really remember when you're looking at your... your you might even write a note for yourself. When you're looking at this passage in Jonah, that anytime you see Lord with a big capital L and then a small capital O, capital R, capital D, that is God's name, Yahweh. In the Hebrew. So there's a lot of talk about God by name. And that's important because people on the ship all have different gods. Now suddenly, 
We're focusing in, zooming in on this guy, Jonah's God, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, who Jonah calls the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So he tells them of what people and who he serves, but not anything else. Doesn't mention that I'm a prophet of God. That might have been important information. Doesn't mention I was supposed to be on my way to Nineveh and went the opposite direction. He holds back a little. And I got to imagine these questions sort of added insult to injury for him. Each of them brings up how bad he has messed up. He, he is a Hebrew, so he should be serving Yahweh. He's turned and fled from him. He's a prophet. He should be giving his message in a very particular place. But he's not there. What is your country? Who are your people? He's turned his back on all the things that should define him. You know, this often happens to us as well. You know, he went on this ship not because he wanted to convert these pagan sailors, as a prophet should, but because he wanted to essentially become one of them. Blend in. Disappear. We in the church often blend in. We're called to stand out. I remember, uh, this is my friend David. We were in youth group together for a little while. You remember the shirt that had all the fish going one way and it had another fish the other way? And it said, go against the flow. That was, it was the ichthus fish too, like the Jesus fish. That was supposed to be us. You go against, you stand out. You don't go along with the flow. You go against the flow. Jonah is trying to blend in. And when we start to blend in, it's very easy for us to forget who we are. When someone asks, e, that stings a little bit. Now, some think this extended conversation with all these questions, sounds like a job interview, is another mark against the authenticity historically of this book. Right? We got the thing where the, the fish swallows him and he lives for three days in the belly. That's out there, right? But then also, your life is on the line. It's chaos. Three times it says the weather was so bad these people despaired and it gets worse and then it gets worse. And, it gets, and they're sitting here having a, well, oh, tell us about yourself. And yet, as Sinclair Ferguson points out, men ask questions in storms when their consciences are awakened to the judgment of God. People ask questions in these moments that they otherwise wouldn't have asked. You ever notice that I've been at hospitals where someone's about to die after an accident. And you know what kind of questions the people, the, the family members have? They ask about what are, you, what are you going to do? And they ask about what are his chances? But most of all, they say, how did this happen? Why? Exactly what? Learning this stuff doesn't help you undo it. They just, people want to know. People want to understand. And these are the questions. Why? Who is this God? Who are you? What have I gotten myself into? Or more like, what have you gotten me into? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? So he's dodgy on some of the details, but he does give his testimony. In a couple verses, it tells us he explained that he was fleeing from the Lord. Almost makes it sound like he told them that as he got on the ship. They just didn't take note because, hey, there's so many different gods. What difference does it make? He winds up, though, still giving them his whole testimony. There is a deep irony here. This guy is fleeing running, getting on a ship, going to the edge of the earth because he doesn't want to preach to a bunch of pagans. And here he is preaching to a bunch of pagans. God's will will be done. Will it be through me or will I run away and I'll be ashamed? Well, it happens in spite of me. Notice, too, that his statement 
is a very orthodox, very correct picture of who God is. Jonah doesn't really say anything about God in this whole book that's not completely accurate. This is a good statement about God being the God of heaven who created this, the, the earth and the, the land, the sea. Later on in chapter 2, he says salvation belongs to the Lord. In chapter 4, he says God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All true, very orthodox statement of faith. It's possible to dot all your I's, cross all your T's for what you say you believe, and even tell yourself you believe, but then to have your life run completely counter to that, which is what is happening with Jonah. It's not enough to say, yes, I can sign on to that confession, I can sign on to that creed, I can, I can put my stamp on that statement of faith. Your theology is not what you say you believe, it's what you cry out to God at three in the morning when life is falling apart. It's what happens when you're in the middle of the storm. Let's see what happens with Jonah. He's told them, I fear the Lord, to which I say, do you? And then he goes on to describe him as the one who created all of these things. He's doing what we often see people doing in our culture today, our postmodern culture, where we can say we fear and serve the Lord, even while fleeing from and going in the opposite direction. And instead of calling us on it, the culture as it stands today goes, wow, that's sophisticated. Very interesting of you. How meta. Well, he's not going to have that response from these men because no one has time for that when they're about to die. I mean, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the sea turns the minutes to hours? Hours. We know that if we are not following him, if we're running away from him, that we don't truly believe in him. We read in, in 1 John, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. At this point, though, in the book, we must give him the benefit of the doubt. That as he says the words, I fear the Lord who created the sea, he goes, oh, you idiot. How are you going to flee from the God who created the sea? on the sea, that he realized his foolishness and turned from it. That's what it seems as we're reading this. The other guys, they look at him, and they're exceedingly afraid. Remember in verse 5, they feared, they were afraid. Now they're exceedingly or very afraid. Literally, it says they feared with a great fear. Remember how great is a key word here? There's a great city. They said he goes to the great sea. There's a great storm. Now there's a great fear. They're very afraid. Why are they so afraid? These, these pagans who don't worship the Lord at all. They hear this word, the Lord, Yahweh. They recognize the name. These guys are going from port to port, hearing stories of different places, different peoples, different gods. They know what this God has done in Egypt. They know what he did in the wilderness. They know what he did to the walls of Jericho. And they are afraid. And they hear, in, in the Hebrew, it's, it's Yahweh Elohe Hashemayim. The, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the heavens. And in their worldview, everyone had their own little God. And we're starting to think more and more as we read and learn and dig in these sites that a lot of them viewed their little God, their patron God, as kind of an intermediary to whatever was the greatest God. Somebody created all this. Someone's in charge of all of this. And they recognize this term, the Lord, the God of the heavens, as meaning the most high deity. 
So these, these men have heard what this God has done, and it's all clicking. It's making sense. They are greatly afraid. They feared with a great fear. And so they say to him, what have you done? Now they know what he's done. This is rhetorical, right? This is like when you break your mom's favorite vase, and she says, what have you done? And you say, is this a trick question? That doesn't get you anywhere. It's the same thing that God actually says both to Eve and then later to Cain. What have you done after they sin? He knows what they've done. It's a rebuke. They rebuke him, and this question is pregnant with more questions. Why'd you do it, Jonah? Did you think that you and God were square? You didn't owe him anything anymore? You'd, you'd put in your time, and now you were done? Did you think you couldn't trust him anymore? He, he'd prove to be unfaithful? Well, he doesn't answer any of these implied questions, so they move from what have you done to what should we do? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. At first glance, when Jonah answers, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will quiet down for you, it seems like he's doing the right thing. He's making everything right. It almost looks like true repentance, because here's a mark of true repentance. You hate your sin more than you hate your suffering. You hate your sin more than you hate the consequences of your sin. You hate your sin more than you love the gratification it gives you in a moment. You hate your sin and you love your God in growing proportions. And here, Jonah says, I am willing to lay down my life. Own up to my sin and lay down my life. Jesus said there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, and then Jesus laid down his life even for his enemies. And Jonah, of course, does prefigure Christ, as we're going to talk about next week. Certainly he is convicted, and he does own up to his sin, but I think I'd probably read this book 50 times before I asked a very important question here. Why do they need to throw him into the sea? Why does he say that? Did God tell him that? Not according to the scripture. We don't read that. I think I kind of assumed as I read it uh, over and over again, he's a prophet. He's so in sync with God. No, he's not! He's more out of sync with God than anybody in the Bible thus far. He's fleeing from God. He's running from God. So why does he say that? The, the obvious answer is to just truly come clean and say, well, let's start at the beginning of your list of questions. What is my occupation? I'm a prophet of Yahweh. What's my job right now? I'm supposed to be going to Nineveh, which you may well know is landlocked, and so I should not even be on this ship. Turn it around. Bring me back. Sorry for the trouble, guys. I'm a little bit of a jerk. I'm embarrassed by this. He doesn't do that. No, he calls out, he says, throw me into the sea. This is the most drama queen thing Jonah could possibly do. Pick me up and cast me into the sea. Does he think God won't forgive him if he goes back on mission? He knows God is gracious. That's why he's running, by the way. He doesn't want God to forgive the Ninevites. And yet he completely despairs. I've run from God. He's coming for me. I guess I've burned that bridge, and that's the end of it. At best, he's projecting his own hard heart unto God, as if God won't forgive him in this situation. It does often happen that people who will own the fact that God is forgiving and even preach the gospel that God forgives sins, deep in their heart will believe the lie that God won't forgive mine. Mine's too bad. I should have known better. I'm out of luck. I've burned the bridge. But maybe more what's going on is that he just is, he's continuing the downward motion. Remember, God said, arise and call out against Nineveh. 
Then the sailors, when he was sleeping, said, What? Arise and call out to your God. Arise, up, up, and he's just going down. He, we read that he goes down to Joppa. Then he pays the fare and goes down into the ship. Then he goes down below deck and goes to sleep. And remember that going down in the Bible, in the Hebraic thought, is it's a euphemism for going into the grave, for dying. And into the grave is where he's been heading the whole time, and he knows it. He's ready to give up. He's ready to cash it in. And we've seen a prophet look like this elsewhere in Scripture, just a little before this, actually. Elijah, you remember how despondent he was ready to just give up as well? He met with God, and he said, God, what's going on? How, how can you possibly let this happen? It was a slightly different situation. People were after him, wanted to kill him. He felt like he was the only prophet left, but he was full of this kind of despair and self-loathing. It can happen. And it happens with Jonah, but his answer is, cast me into the sea. I give up. I'm done. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I don't want to be at all anymore. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. This is like the third time it's gotten more tempestuous. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, and they began to cry out as they're about to throw this man. I mean, th think about it. Picture the ship. You've got sails. In this situation, they had to be taken down because the storm was too great. They're busting out the oars now. And it says, literally, wouldn't lead to translate the Hebrew, they dug. The word for digging. I mean, they're digging into the water. They're just desperate. They're full of fear, yes, but also humanity and compassion. They don't want to throw this man into the sea. They don't want to risk angering this God further, but they don't want to kill anyone either. And, and these pagan men, these sailors, who, by the way, have a bad reputation in the ancient Near East, their concern for just one life highlights this sinful disregard that Jonah has for an entire city full of people. He fled from the Lord because he did not want to see pagans saved from destruction. And now, as he's indifferent to these men around him, they care for him. They care for him. Yes, that is great irony. And I'll say, by the way, give me some of those pagans who care for people over God's reluctant prophet any day. Right? I vote for those guys over the person who says, oh yeah, I sign all the right documents with all the right uh, soli deo gloria or in him or Jesus' name, and I know the right buzzwords, but I don't have a heart of compassion and humanity and love for my neighbor. How often we're put to shame by unbelievers and how kind they can be versus how hard-hearted we see our fellow Christians or even feel ourselves being. I've heard people say, this actually tests my faith that my neighbor's an atheist and she's out serving people and volunteering and yet I find myself caring very little about the people around me. Don't let that test your faith. Let that inspire you. You have a reason. You have a reason to serve in Jesus' name. And what a great common ground with your neighbor to bring the gospel. So they tried to turn the boat around. This is common grace at play. But they can't. And the Hebrew here is they tried to shuv. And if it sounds like that's a Hebrew word I've tossed at you a few times, it is because I, I throw it out there a lot. It's the word that usually is used for turn or return or repent. That the picture of repentance in the Bible is not just something you go, all right, I repent, fill out a card, it's sent directly to heaven. No, it means to turn 180 degrees, turn from my sin, turn toward my Savior. But it also can just mean to turn. 
And that's what they're trying to do. All right, let's turn back. You know, if this guy's supposed to be heading somewhere else, and they try, and they dig, and they try, but they can't shuv because Jonah hasn't, in his heart, repented. They can't return until he returns to God, or he leaves the boat. Once again, I've burned that bridge. I can't do it. I'm just going to give up. Cast me into the sea. Therefore, they call out to the Lord, O Lord. And again, look, both of those, they called out to Yahweh. They're, they're praying to a new God now. O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. You can't turn around as long as Jonah's in the boat and he hasn't turned his heart around. It won't work. It won't last. By the way, Jonah's apparent repentance also won't last. And you know that if you've read the rest of the book. But this is the first prayer in all of the book of Jonah. It's the first prayer at all. It's the first prayer to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and it's prayed by Gentiles. Twice Jonah has been told, call out, and he hasn't called out. They're crying out now to Jonah's God after their gods all proved impotent to help. It's wild what a little danger to life and limb will do. This is in the book of Revelation. We read about this. We have what's called the trumpet judgments. Picture for us of how between the first and second coming of Christ, there will be times when a natural disaster or something horrible happens and people who didn't call on the name of the Lord will begin to call on the name of the Lord. Churches can get packed after something terrible goes down, but often people's interest is short-lived. These people call out to the Lord. And they say, don't, don't put this on us. It's not us. We don't want to do it. They're not cruel people. They're religious enough to be praying while they're in danger and merciful enough to want to spare this man, even if it means danger to themselves. There's something to be said for people who do the best they can by the light they have. Now compared to Jonah, who is standing full on in the light with his eyes closed as if he's in darkness. These sailors now recognize and understand the sovereignty of God. He is in control. When they say, you have done as you please, they're quoting the Psalms without knowing it. Psalm 135.6. Probably jot that down in your margin if it's not already there in your Bible. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. It's like that was written just for this situation. They understand God's sovereignty. Well, Jonah, the prophet, thinks he's supposed to get a vote. I've known, I've known Christians, and I've been that kind of Christian, who complains, wait a minute, God's doing this thing, and I don't like it, and how can that be? I didn't even get invited to the last meeting of the Trinity. It's almost like it's not a democracy or something. And yet these sailors, they put it all in God's hands and trust that he is as big as Jonah says he is. They cast him out, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. He's thrown out as the unclean thing that he is into the chaos. It reminds me greatly of the scapegoat, the scapegoat that was chosen by Lot and then sent out into the wasteland with the sins of the people on its head. It reminds me also of Achan, who was cast down into the valley of trouble, stoned to death and burned so that God's anger would pass from his people. So there is certainly a sense in which he says, I choose to be unclean rather than repent. Now treat me 
as such. And the sea ceased literally, woodenly again. It says the sea stood. It stood still. Robert Jameson writes, like a servant who stands after he has fulfilled his master's command. Now what? Everything is at God's command. This both confirms their decision for these sailors and shakes them to the core as they think about how close, how narrowly they escaped the wrath of this great God. And they are in awe. Remember, this whole thing is very closely tied to that story in the Gospels we read last week of Jesus calming the storm. Do you remember what the disciples said to each other after that went down? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Yeah, these sailors are looking at each other going, who is this God that even the wind and the waves are his servants? After raging, they stop and say, now what? And then in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. More irony. Jonah has now unintentionally converted a boat full of pagans. Well, he flees the idea of converting a city full of pagans. He can't get away from God's will. We see in verse 5, they were afraid. They feared. And then we see in verse 10, they feared, and then you have that word great that keeps coming up. It's God the law. They feared great. They feared with a great fear. And then you have exactly that same construct, but this time it's got an object. You know how you can be afraid? And someone says, what are you afraid of? You're like, I don't know. I'm just afraid. Fear can be something that, that's intransitive, meaning it doesn't have an immediate object. But ultimately, you've got to acknowledge what or who am I afraid of or do I fear? In this case, they go from being greatly afraid in general to fearing a great God. It says, the men feared with a great fear Yahweh. That's who they fear. They fear him with a reverential fear. And we see that it's a worshipful fear because they now worship him. They offer sacrifices. They make vows. They do exactly what we would expect someone who has turned to the true God. They pledge themselves to his service. This is no foxhole conversion that doesn't stick. Yes, they were afraid, but now the sea is calm. The danger is past, and still they worship. Yes, sometimes your problems have a simple solution. Give the keys to your friend. He can take the old lady. I'll stay with my, my uh, woman of my dreams. Aaron, by the way. For the sailors, the simple solution was throw the Hebrew into the sea and then worship the God of heaven. For Jonah, the simple solution would have been confess his sin, which he did, and then also repent. Two different things. Confess means to agree with. Tell God, tell others, say, yeah, I sinned. I, I did wrong. But to repent is to then, as Jesus says, go and sin no more. Shuv, return. Turn your back on your sin. And for a Christian, we would say on this side of the cross, hold tight to Jesus, your Savior. Focus on the wounds in his hands and feet and head and side. And remember, you are paid for and bought with a price. I remember an argument I had one time with a nice little old lady from Texas. Uh, we were both on the board together at a different church, and we were talking about how we would present the gospel to kids at a VBS thing. And she had this language that said, tell God you're sorry for your sins. And I said, nah, that's not enough. You're saying confess. That's one thing. I feel bad. But then what will you do tomorrow? Repent. 
return, turn away from them. It has to happen for there to be true regeneration. If I'm not repenting, I'm not saved. There's a lot more to repentance than just feeling bad. Even if I feel bad that I'm separated from God. Don't run from God then, is the application. Don't despair when you do. Don't give up on Him and don't think He'll ever give up on you. Don't tell yourself, hey, I burned that bridge and so now I have to rebuild it. I'll start over tomorrow from the beginning. Or next time someone says, hey, if you want to rededicate your life, come forward. Then I'll go forward and I'll start at square one. No, when you trip and fall when you're running a race, you don't go back to the starting line and begin again. You get up, dust yourself off, and keep on going. And as you go, you go in the direction of the cross. You go in the direction of your Savior and away from your sins. By the way, you can't burn that bridge. It's impossible. It's, it's, it's made of adamantium. Your missiles do nothing. Your fires do nothing. If you belong to him, no one can snatch you from his hand. We look at Elijah. How did he respond when he was full of despair and self-loathing and at his wit's end in God's presence? He didn't run from God. He went to him. He said, God, we need to talk. And God said, okay. Up on, on this mount, he goes up there and God comes to him. First, a whirlwind, but God's not in the whirlwind. Then he brings upon him a fire. God's not in the fire. And there's all these different... And then he comes in a still, small voice. He tells him it's going to be okay. I haven't forgotten you. I haven't left you all alone. There are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. I'll be with you. Trust me. Keep on following me. And when we blend in, like Jonah... When we stop going against the flow and find ourselves going with it and say, how did that happen? Remember, it's one moment, one step back into his presence. It's a cliche, but yeah, you can take a thousand steps away from God. It's only one back to him. Take it now, not tomorrow, not the next day, not when I feel like the time is right. This moment, turn from your sin and turn to your Savior. In a sense, we're very much all in the same position as those sailors. We realize how close we came to God's wrath because of our sin and how we avoided it because one man was cast into the abyss on our behalf and calmed the storm. And so we worship Him and make sacrifices and vows and lift up our voices to the heavens. And we'll pick up with that in verse 17 next week. Same exact time, same exact channel. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Jonah, so familiar to us, but Lord, we pray that we would see in it what we have missed before. Lord, we pray that we would not lose Jonah because of a lack of faith, but also not because of neglect or a lack of attention, but that we would look to this prophet and see ourselves in his rebellion, and Lord, see your grace and how greatly, how wild and how wide it is and how it cannot be overcome how our, our tiny little no is overcome by the thunderous and gracious sound of your yes, I will save you, I will love you, I will not let you go. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.